Marvelverse, Agents of Shield, the TV show. You mean? Yes. Uh, yeah. And Agent Carter. Um, yeah, I haven't watched the Agent Carter piece, which is strange. It's it's very much a period piece, and uh, it's a lot of fun. So you get a lot of gender issues, women's issues, because she's the agent that uh, no one takes seriously because she's a woman, but of course she's actually really awesome. But yeah. they want her to make coffee and things. And the other interesting <laughs> bit in it is there's a guy in there that's disabled. He's, I, I don't know what the nature, but he uses the arm crutches kind of. Maybe it was a polio? Was it I, it might, with, yeah, you? that's probably a good guess. And so there's an attraction, and they're both kind of outsiders because they're not the, the normative white male agent. And it's taking place in the same, so... The first Captain America, he gets yes. frozen, and then he gets obviously while she's suddenly. well while he's frozen, so it's I yeah. guess the fifties. Cold War is starting, yeah. So it's got like a Mad Men feel to it, where like occasionally Mad Men would show you stuff that they don't even comment on it. But I remember like I remember the pilot where the mom's driving around and the kids are crawling from the back bench seat to the front and back and forth, and every parent goes, "Oh, like That's crazy!" This the kind of craziness, and yeah. So are you saying it's sort of subtly about the empowerment issue, or is that front and center as a storytelling device? I think it's a little subtle. It's mostly Marvel uh, superheroics, but it's definitely got a vibe of, of, of about this woman who is, is uh, this great agent, but she kind of has to fight on several fronts. But, uh, but, but it's good. It's well done. I mean, and Joss Whedon always has that. He always strong, has strong female characters that are underrated. You think Buffy, you think uh, the, what was the sci-fi one? The Firefly. Oh, uh, Firefly. Yeah, yeah, so, you know, she's the big weapon. Uh, so that's a real Joss Whedon-type theme. Even though he's not involved with Agent Carter and even Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., I think he's a producer. I don't know how much he's involved, but it, it feels like him. Yeah, I think he sort of sets the trajectory mm-hmm. and probably has, I think I read something about it, like he has an like eagle eye over the scripts and the, the direction. Of course, Marvel's controlling it because it has to tie into the movie verse and sure. all this kind of stuff. and. But yeah, he's not. I think he directed maybe one or two. Uh, actually, maybe he didn't direct any. I don't know. Seems like at the beginning. And then his brother was involved. He's got a. Yeah. I forget his brother's name. He's got maybe yeah. a couple, but one of them was involved. Jay Sweden? <laughs> I have no idea. Something with a J? Uh, it's probably. Yeah, no. Um, Rick Ross, uh, Sweden. <laughs> Rick Ross. <laughs> um, yeah, I need to get something out of the freezer. I'll be back. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, no, okay. I didn't know that about Agent Carter. I knew. I mean, in the movies, you know, she they fast forward her to the old woman who yes. seems to have either Alzheimer's or some sort of memory loss, and she keeps forgetting who she's talking to, mm-hmm. which is, uh, you know, that's the interesting part about the Captain America story is, you know, the man out of time. Mm-hmm. I remember actually when they announced Captain America, of course, this is all when Marvel was very new, and even Iron Man seemed kind of risky, and which is funny to look back on. Mm-hmm. But I remember, uh, I think it was my brother that said, like, how are they going to put this, like, Boy Scout, Captain America character, like, on the screen in any kind of meaningful way? Because mm-hmm. it seems it seems hokey. And to, uh, granted, I think the early plots were relatively patriotic and today might seem a bit hokey. Right. You know, he was, he was literally punching Hitler in the face in, like, <laughs> multiple yeah. versions of the first And there was the a bit ones. in the 80s or 90s where they really, the comic book went off the rails and... He traveled around the country in a van. Do you remember? The, I don't know if you ever read it. It was really bad. No. It's like he had a van and would drive around, and people would kind of phone in to his team, and they would tell him where to go to help people. It was like he was. It was awful. So he's a one man eighteen. <laughs> sort of. It was one man eighteen. 
He's B.A. Barakas yeah, with he had the shield. Like, yeah, it's like Bucky was back manning the phones to send him out to help him out in you know, South Illinois or something. Oh, Bucky. Yeah, it yeah, was terrible. Uh, actually, I don't know if Bucky. I think he might have still been dead then, but um, then they brought him back. But yeah, I agree. Captain America is kind of hokey, but, but when you draw it right in mm-hmm. contrast to other things, uh, and I think the new Civil War movie, Captain America, is going to be fabulous. Yeah. Because it's really pushing his patriotism. Well, that's the Superman-Batman theme. Mm-hmm. And you don't really realize it until you put them side by side. They have the exact same origin story. Mm-hmm. Orphaned, thrown out, you know, kind of thing. But you're right about the Civil War thing. That, that, that actually was the first legitimate comic book I read that had Captain America in it. And I was sort of taken aback because it, it, it played into at least modern sensibilities. Because it's Iron Man wants to be, and actually the movie does this. Iron Man wants to be Big Brother. He wants to s- sort of have surveillance over everything. Right. And um, Captain America becomes the voice of, we don't do that. You know, mm-hmm. we don't, we're not fearful of boogeymen around every corner to the point that we just treat everyone as a suspect. Yeah, there's especially really iconic scenes in that graphic novel of Civil War that I, I've just seen the trailer, of course. That's all we've seen. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like that's where they're going with it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's going to be this, this Big Brother, you know, you have, you know, you're a terrorist if you don't, if you're not on our side, no matter what, that kind of a thing. Yeah, and you've got good people on both sides of the argument, and uh, it's a brilliant showpiece for the various superheroes because you can bring them all in without being too contrived because they're all getting caught up in this angst about you know what it means to be a superhero in in modern day uh, world in America. So yeah, well, at the beginning of the graphic novel, that they do something. It's after nine eleven, just not that long after nine eleven. They do something crazy where they blow up an elementary school. Mm. That's how it all starts. Mm-hmm. These vigilante masked people try to chase down these kind of B-rank bad guys. And it's all for a, a documentary show. This is back when reality television was dominating everything. Mm-hmm. And this one guy has this, of course, bad guy superpower to basically make himself a nuclear bomb. And he just blows up. It's <laughs> like right next to a school. And immediately you're like, whoa, this is actually mm-hmm. very... I, I'm surprised they had the guts to put that story out there yeah. for one. Um, maybe they wouldn't now. I don't know, but uh, I, I'm going to guess it's not in the movie. That that would raise too many flags after tragedies in elementary schools. Mm-hmm. But it sets the stage for how do we deal with this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah, it, you're right. Oh, good arguments on both sides. It it showcases strengths and weaknesses. It's it's a really compelling. Maybe the idea is a story of comparing and contrasting mm-hmm. in any genre becomes actually very interesting in terms of noticing things you wouldn't notice if it was just about the single character, uh, yes. their, their story. And superhero, you really want people to fight. That's what it is at the end of the day. You want the good guys to fight the bad guys, but you also would like to see the good guys fight. What happened if Captain America fought Batman? Right. And this is a great right. way to get the good guys to fight each other because they become like these zealots for their cause that's yeah. divided the community. Well, and everyone already is like, what the heck, Batman versus Superman? Mm-hmm. Like, that's not a that's not a contest. Like, yeah, he could kill you in three seconds. Yeah, you know, like everything. Yeah, that's right. That that's coming out also. But the the original graphic novel actually makes it a believable. That that's all you need is a believable story. It doesn't mm-hmm. have to. I don't care about the lore of it. You know, mm-hmm. I don't need Batman to develop some sort of kryptonite goggles there. He can shoot laser beams or something. I don't, that that doesn't interest me. Mm-hmm. Just make it believable so that the characters stand out. Mm-hmm. Well, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., I love. Uh, that show was disappointing its first season. Most people agree. But yeah. at a certain point, it just became 
fantastic and yeah. love the characters. Every week is, you know, it reminds me of, it's the old show 24, where every week was like a pulse pounding excitement chapter. There's never a filler episode that's standalone. Everything's connected to the larger plot and you, you can't miss anything and it just keeps going. And Agents yeah. of S.H.I.E.L.D. has been that way. And I thought, especially the last season where she's on this other planet trying to survive, I just thought that was amazing. This dark planet yeah. that never has a sunrise and there's a monster there and she's trapped and doesn't know if she's going to get back to Earth and uh, meets an astronaut that's... And they don't make it about the monster. No. You don't even see him all that much, which is usually all you need. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you're right. It's, it's a Joss Whedon thing, um, I think. At least it's a style of his with shows, which I think is his hand as the, direct, as the producer of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which I don't think he made the churn fast enough in Firefly, which is why it got canceled, which is mm -hmm. literally the beginning of a show like this. He just knows. If you start heavy, you start with these big plots and uh, you know names of races of people and all this lore, only the, the true fans who know this will get it, and even they will complain. Right. But what you need are, frankly, people like my wife, who actually watches the show with me now. Mm. Because it starts out, I mean, frankly, the show is Scooby-Doo at the first six, <laughs> maybe 60% of the first season. Mm -hmm. It's, oh, no, there's a bad guy. Mm -hmm. What are we going to do in the next 45 minutes to beat this to guy? Resolve it, yep. And then they resolve and it's done. And every character is very simplistic. It's very, you know, you have the kind of gruff good guy. You have the geeky couple, all this stuff. And then suddenly it pivoted mm -hmm. at the end of the first season. And the like the last maybe at least third of the first season, you're like, whoa, yes. this is actually really interesting. It really turned around. And then if you notice, from that point on, each season, you're right about the 24 analogy, each season is its own plot. Mm -hmm. So there's one thing that they're focused on, and it doesn't become the new monster of the week. Yeah, I love that. Uh, it reminds me of Dollhouse, if you watch that Joss Whedon show. It also was interesting, and but didn't reach its potential to the end of season one. And uh, uh, Angel was similar, the, the Buffy spinoff that started mm. out, might have been a couple of seasons, it was really not good. And all of a sudden, it pivots and you think, whoa, what just happened? This actually yeah. is great and it used to not be. And I just watched it because I'm loyal. But Joss Whedon is, is great. And uh, I, I think he got, from what I read and heard, he got a little burned with the last Avengers movie. And he's really? done. So I'd be curious what he does next. Yeah, I think the studio controlled a lot of the stuff. Oh, and, and yeah. ever wrote him, which I'm surprised as successful as he was. I would have thought he could have done what he wanted. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it definitely, some of the editing, it felt choppy. Mm -hmm. Like, it, it's like, there must have been something that got cut. Like, mm -hmm. it, it felt very fast in some places. Like, hey, we're shooting robots. Hey, let's drive in a car and tell jokes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. With Hawkeye. And suddenly it's like, okay, let's shoot some more bad guys. And it just had this, that's not how he works. No. So it definitely felt like it had been controlled. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's the word. So we both teach. I thought we might talk a little bit about I don't know, life hacker stuff, class hacker. We could call class, it class hacker, hacker stuff. Yeah, like I guess what have you learned? And we're partly dancing around a word that neither of us likes, but yeah, uh, it's I guess we we can have the reveal. That could be our enemy. This is like a superhero episode, and this we'll is the episode the where we. The enemy is pedagogy. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I said, oh, he said the word. He said the word. Uh, although you hear people here say, uh, in the U.S., say pedagogy. Which pedagogy? Which kind of irritating pedagogy. to me, but I guess, you know. Is it a Britishism to say pedagogy? I don't know. 
I hear pedagogy a lot here. I guess I have a, a pretty mixed up like lexicon. Like certain words come out of my mouth are not. I don't know where I got them or why I sure. pronounce them certain ways. It's uh, I'm a mismatch, but I say pedagogy. I guess pedagogy. Pedagogy. I th- uh, if I were looking into a mirror now with the door closed, it, you know the the ghost of pedagogy would come out. And <laughs> Say it three scare. times. <laughs> it scare me. Bloody, bloody Mary. Well, I, it, actually, it's interesting. Um, uh, not to make this too fine of a dovetail, but we were just talking about Joss Whedon seeming to learn things about storytelling from a couple of failures that didn't quite really take off, mm-hmm. and now there's one that is taking off that really follows the same pattern. But he learned quite maybe maybe he learned how to do it in a different way. It might also be that the Avengers and the stuff drove more interest, but still. The interesting thing for me is, I think when I started teaching, I didn't realize how much I would learn about teaching, if that makes sense, the, the craft of it. And I don't just mean the lecture, though it does play into there. But also, the question of how am I testing? You know, what do I do quizzes? Do I test on the reading? I mean, there's like a, a Pandora's box that you open Right. When you start to lay out your syllabus. And because the syllabus really is something like a contract, you're saying, I'm, I have these goals. I want to teach you church history in my case. But what ends up happening is, is you start going at every point. It's not just, I mean, a student knows, I think the teacher knows when an assignment or a process is just simply there because we were used to this. Like, okay, we're going to read a book and there's going to be a quiz on the book. What happened in chapter two? This kind of mm-hmm. like thing. Mm-hmm. Content. Content, exactly. Yeah. Maybe that's the issue is like, I, I didn't realize how much I'd have to think about how much content am I even going to expect a student to retain? Mm-hmm. And then what skills do I, that's the, maybe that's the word, what skills do I want them to have or start developing by the end of the course? Right. Uh, do you know Stephen Prothero? He's got that book, uh, Religious Literacy. No. Are you familiar with that? He's up at Boston University. He's written several things on religion. Uh, great guy. Well, I don't actually know him, but he seems like a good guy, and I like his work. It's very approachable. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, it's awesome. I'd lend him I'd lend him 20 bucks. He'd pay me back. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Stephen, if you're listening, hello. Hello. That book on religious literacy got me to thinking about skills versus content, because he makes some interesting comments that we've in America we've shifted to skills over the past 100 years. Mm. And that's all well and good, but the problem is people don't have content at all. They, they don't yeah. know the Bible. They don't know what's in it. And so he kind of argues that we really need some basic content about all religions just to be good citizens. So that's really got me to thinking it really is a balance between trying to get them to, at least for now, know some things. We can't guarantee they won't forget it. They probably will. Yeah. Uh, but also balancing that, like you said, with skills, which is the ability for me to deal with ambiguity, to, to balance the fact that, for example, religion is a cause of a lot of violence and oppression, mm. but also a force of liberation and freedom. And like both things are true. Like the Bible's been used to support slavery. It's been used for the abolition of slavery. And, right. and if you can understand that, you're kind of getting to the mystery of what whatever religion is. It, it's something along those lines. It's in the humanities. So that's a skill. That's kind of the critical thinking bit. And getting them to think that way, to understand the Bible might be very different than what they've maybe assumed is mm-hmm. a great goal. But then they also do need to understand there's four Gospels and and yeah. try to get some basics. And uh, it is really interesting trying to balance that, especially with students that, that often don't read or don't want to read or don't know how to read and really know very little. And also trying to interest them. 
I know, I'm sure you struggle with this with cell phones. And, yeah. And yeah. some people take them up. I don't do that. I don't want to be adversarial. No. I've occasionally yeah. tried to, you know, try to tease someone about using their phone too much in class, but I don't want to be the nagging parent. And yet they are seduced by the power of yeah. cell phones. So I, and, and, and they're not listening. So how do you get that? I don't know. And it makes us Mr. Wilson to their Dennis the Menace. Right. I mean, do you want to be that? No. Um, but the phones I, are seductive. That's the problem. It is very yeah. seductive. I usually drop more silly comments, I think, along the way. So, mm-hmm. you know, actually, I had a class that's launched this past weekend, and I made a comment. I said, you know, here's, if, for those of you who are new, here's the login to the Wi-Fi. I said, you know, if you want to check the scores or watch Netflix, uh, just kind of like mm-hmm. make that little, like, knowing comment. And no one's really doing that. Hmm. Well, score, they might look up scores or something if they're a sports fan. But they're not watching a Netflix movie. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, at least I hope not. But uh, I think one... One of my colleagues, he says, iPads, you know, desktop computer, or not desktop, but laptop computers, uh, those are all fine. He said, just, how about you just put the cell phone away hmm. for five minutes? Mm-hmm. Now, of course, what he may not realize is that on particularly Macs, you can still instant message right, right. On, the, on the laptop. But still, I find, I wouldn't say it's a game, but I do find it's partly my responsibility to be more interesting than yes. what someone is saying. Yes, I agree. But to, to the skills and knowledge thing, I think you're totally right because one of our practical theologians, which even that name is, is I think, part of the problem. We, we treat other subjects as impractical by yes, definition. Yeah. But, but that's not how we mean it, of course. But uh, he actually has a phrase. He says, our goal is to not make theologians or pastors, and this is a seminary context, he says, our job is to make, uh, to create reflective practitioners. Hmm. And I, I like, I've come to really like that phrase because he says you can be a practitioner of teaching. You can be a professor if you want to go on for an academic career. You can be a practitioner of, uh, in the marketplace. You can be a practitioner in a church, whatever it might be. But the goal is to make them more reflective. Mm-hmm. And you can't be reflective unless you have content and a skill of reflection mm-hmm. that's kind of built in. So he's just found at least a, a verbal way of saying it's not an either or and it has to be a bit of both. And so like in my case with church history, I can't just assign videos or reading and then only come in and say, so what'd you think? Huh? Huh? Right, like right. That, that kind of, I mean, it's like somebody read a, a book once about, you know, that class discussion increases learning. And so suddenly that's all we want to do is discuss things. Mm-hmm. Well, there's times I, I also feel like I need to lead them through something. Mm-hmm. And I, I think this is, this was actually driven home today or yesterday. I can't remember what it was. But on YouTube, so I have this YouTube channel, of course, with videos. And one of the things that I've usually get a chuckle at is the comments that come down. So what I've found is that people who are overly enamored with like particular specific minutia related to content mm-hmm. are the fastest to be condemnatory. I mean, I literally had somebody, um, I, have a, I have a one video on the Catholic faith in America, which Anyone objectively could admit wasn't the best go. I mean, it's a it's mm-hmm. a pu- largely Puritan country. Uh, I mean, even to the fact that in the 1950s, JFK has to justify that he's not that kind of a Catholic when right. he's running for office. I mean, there's this long heritage of you know the Protestant Protestant kingdom is yeah. Uh, uh, what's his name calls it? Martin Marty calls it the Protestant kingdom or Protestant empire. I think yeah, the influence and, of and it's okay to say that. I mean, yeah. come on. It, 
It, it's it, just be objective. Mm-hmm. I, I literally had someone uh, call for me to recant. Uh, nice. <laughs> they said, they said, well, you le-, literally it was you left out these two, frankly, very very small points along the way. Like I would call for you to recant. This is like, oh, that's that's kind of strong, right? right. <laughs> you know? But but what I feel coming out of that person is, I have. I call them Wikipedia or Jeopardy facts. I have these two data points mm-hmm. that you didn't mention. Therefore, the entirety of what you're saying is bogus. And obviously, that is the problem with pure content-driven material is, okay, yeah. let me just shove stuff in your head, sort of software download. But we don't teach them how to think about it and mm-hmm. reflect on it to notice the soft spots and, and the, 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 all those little varieties. Yeah, yeah, and the exception—you know—there are these these data points, like you said, and especially in history, there's always going to be an exception. But but the thing is, we have to generalize, or we'll never get anywhere. So you're you're yeah. caught, but you're generalizing. But yeah, and so I, and occasionally students will bring that up with something like that with me, and I just have to go with it, and like, well, yeah, you're right, but still, you know, it's still we have to we have to go with the flow here, which is that whatever. How dare you generalize in a survey course? <laughs> <laughs> it's like. What what did you think this was? Yeah, I have to summarize it, you know. Yeah, but that's interesting. Electronics. I agree. You and, you and I are similar. That um, we don't. I like that phrase about not being Mr. Wilson to Dennis the Menace. Uh, uh, I want to treat people like adults, mm. unless you know they really are acting. Some some people are more childish, and, and you do have to be a bit of a parent. But in general, uh, I'll, I'll assume you're telling me the truth. I'll assume you're an adult. And uh, they need to be re- learn to be responsible. And I also I, I hope I'm more interesting. It does give me a bit of competition. And sometimes, yeah. to be honest, I see they're playing something mindless, like they're playing uh, what's the bejeweled or something. Yeah, which totally. which you can listen while you're doing. You're really it's like doodling, and and that doesn't bother me. Occasionally, they're they're trying to do something else or interactive. But um, yeah, actually, I have someone on on staff at my campus, uh, and she. She knows a great deal about learning styles, and she says uh, that she is a horrible auditory learner. Hmm. But one of the ways she gets out of that is she doodles. Right. And you'll see her like in staff meeting or something. She's drawing like I mean, they're little nonsense mm-hmm. things on her pad, but it's it's the way she's taught herself to to doodle. Mm-hmm. It's like when her hands are busy, her her ears can listen better. She says. Yeah, yeah, and I do that some too. I get fidgety. And it's partly because I'm so used to being in front of the classroom that it's hard to then be in the back. But uh, I, I tend to doodle. I, I, do, I do tend to think some teachers, I think there's two, two faults. One is assuming a, a kind of boot camp mentality that you should get the respect just because you happen to be yeah, up in front. Right. It's, you know, do what I say. You know, this is, you don't, this is my house, my rules. There's not a lot of that, but there's certainly there's some, some of that. Some ego, yeah. yeah. And it's... You know, I didn't go to school for 30 years for you to ignore me. <laughs> uh, that's one. So, uh, set, Good luck with that one. But <laughs> Yeah, setting that aside is obvious sort of narcissism. Yeah. Uh, the other side of it is, I think, a well-intentioned desire to not let students self-harm. Mm-hmm. And usually what's, you know, we don't want them to miss stuff. And I, I think we forget how long it took us to, to remember it or to, to really grasp it the first yes. time. yeah. And you're expecting 100% retention or something close to that. Mm-hmm. And you're just not going to shoot for that. But let me give you an example of like how it changed. So when I first started teaching, say, a church history class, I did this sort of standard testing. Now, from the beginning, I was big on not testing the reading. What I try to do is assign really good reading. And then I say, look, if you 
submit a form at the end of the semester saying you did all the reading that I assigned, you get 10% of your grade, full credit. Hmm. But I, I mean, I don't read this way after reading a book. If you were to say, what was the, the thesis statement of chapter three? I'm going to say, I don't know, but I can discuss the book still. Mm-hmm. You know, so that, that kind of, I think it changes the way we read when they're thinking, is this on the test? Is this on the test? So I just want them to read for enjoyment. So I didn't do that, but I did do regurgitation tests. Mm-hmm. So it was true, false, you know, uh, what did Martin Luther nail the 95 theses or not? <laughs> kind right. of not quite that simplistic, but um, fill in the blank, that kind of thing. And then a couple of essays. Mm-hmm. And then about three years ago, maybe two and a half years ago, I just realized no one is ever going to interact with this material exactly that way for the rest of their life. Mm-hmm. No one's going to walk up to them. Let's say they're a pastor now. Hey, when was the 95 Theses? I mean, you're going to say, I don't know, get your phone out. Like, Google it. <laughs> like, you know. But, it, but what somebody might do is walk up and say, hey, what do you think about Luther being an anti-Semite? And they, maybe they don't know. Or maybe mm-hmm. they forgot. Mm-hmm. And so I switched suddenly. And I've had a lot more, uh, both an enjoyable experience on my end, and I think students are, are, are finding it more compelling. I say, look, your, your exams are going to be open book, open note. But I'm going to ask you questions that, you can ha- that you're going to have all these things open, and you still have to think. Mm-hmm. So in a, maybe a medieval class, it's, is there any justifiable reason to do a crusade? Ever. Which is getting at the question of violence and you know, right. the, at what point do you put the Christian name under a flag, this kind of stuff? Or are the creeds normative now? Uh, do, do we, can we, is it just that, that time in history or do we still need them somehow? And really getting them to form opinions based off the material. And you know what's interesting? They retain almost the identical amount of content. Huh. Because they, they process the material in a way that makes them actively think of an answer. And yeah, they might look up the date of this and that, but it's not about dates, yeah. at least in church history. It's about what, how do you apply this in a reflective way? So that's the skill side. How do you apply this in something you're thinking about right now? Right, right. Uh, yeah, and I, I do that definitely. I, my institution has a, we have a graduate degree and uh, a master's degree, and those students can handle that sort of question, and I do favor that in general, so I'm with you on that. The problem with the undergrads is they'll just say yes or no. Like, they're, they're so young. If you yeah. ask them a real kind of open-ended analytical yeah. question, yeah. They, they don't – I mean, the good ones can, but a lot of them, they, they kind of need the hand-holding. So I do, yeah. I do like to ask some kind of basic context type questions, content, um, and some people do really well. That's the other interesting bit. Some people are really good at multiple choice, and some people suck at it. So I yeah. try to have some multiple choice and some short answer and some essay, and that way, you know, hopefully, and then some papers, and that way you at least feel like you get a chance to shine in something. Uh, hopefully, I'm catching everything. I sometimes do wonder about the old uh, oral exam stuff. That would be kind of cool to do. Yeah, because uh, one-on-one you can sense. Yeah, you can sense if they're dot dot dotting, trailing yes. off. Yeah. Like, well, I I like to think that yeah. in my world, like exactly. Guy, yeah. But yeah. Uh, and I did that once for one student who had broken her wrist and couldn't take the test and couldn't type, and she agreed to it. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll ask. So she says. So she says, right? Yeah, it's a big <laughs> cast, and she left crying. But anyway, we had a. Good- <laughs> But uh, it was kind of an interesting experiment, but I, I don't, wouldn't really want to do that. I think it would freak too many people out. But, and it would take yeah. a lot of time also to spend 20 minutes yeah. for each person. 
Well, that's the thing. Class sizes are what they are now. Yeah, it would be really tricky. But uh, you raise a point, though, because the average age of the people in my class are is like low 30s. Mm -hmm. So the age that you're talking about is different Um, because someone who's, you know, 18 to 22, you said this before, you know, their brains aren't even fully formed. They're still learning how to even have an opinion sometimes. Maybe they came from a undergrad or a high school system where it was just simply, I don't know, you tell me what's on the test. Like, yes. And, and they're, they're flexing those wings for the first time. How quick can I take this test and get out? Yeah. Which is yeah. not the way to think of a test, which is how fast can I get out of here? Yeah. yeah but you're right, though. The, my, the, the favorite answer is, I kind of think it's both. <laughs> like, you know, it's like, uh, really? It, Luther's anti-Semitism? It's yeah. kind of both right and wrong? Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm going to go with wrong. Just, yeah. just, just, yeah. And they love but, to end with, but and that's just my opinion or something. Yeah, like whatever right. they've said, they totally relativize it. I'm like, why did you just throw this yeah. under a bush here? Why can't you just yeah. claim the name here? Yeah, I think if I were in a predominantly undergraduate setting, it, I would have to entirely rethink how I approach it. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've, I've taught in an undergraduate setting, actually. Hmm. Uh, I've, most of the people I've had are either mid to late 20s or, in my case, averages in the 30s. Mm-hmm. Which means, of course, we uh, the challenge I t- sometimes have is students are haven't been in class in thirty years. Yes, it's been that long, sure. and a lot of anxiety, I, a lot of a lot of it. Yeah, and it's what's great is a lot of them. Yeah, it's it's fear mm-hmm. uh, as any student has, but um, and it's certainly fatigue and the stress. I mean, they got mortgages and kids yeah. and all stuff. Jobs, but, maybe. Yeah, totally. Yeah, but it's funny. Um, our our president he teaches ethics and. Uh, I probably shouldn't say this, but uh, I'll go ahead. Why not? Cut it out. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, sir. The internal cut it out. Don't worry. I will cut this if you want me to, sir. Uh, (laughs) No, but no, he he says it out loud. But he said, you know, he went, he taught like 70 students that were probably average age 23 Mm -hmm. in ethics. And then he came down, this is my first like like semester on the job. And he taught an ethics course with a group of, of like 15 people, I think all of whom were in ministry of some kind. Wow. And he pulled me aside and he said, Ryan, he goes, this is nothing against the, the 24-year-old. He says, but this class is better. Hmm. I said, oh, I, said, I just, I, I didn't hear him quite right. I said, well, what do you mean by that? And he said, what I mean is when the students here raise their hand, it's not, well, what about this random hypothetical possibility that might never happen? Mm-hmm. It's, well, I have this going on right now in yeah. my world. How do I deal with this gray area? And it was actually very rich and a kind of a thick experience of this, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know how to deal with this. This is an ethical conundrum. Mm-hmm. And he really enjoyed walking them through that. Yeah, the traditional undergrads, you're really kind of preparing them. I, I, some of that's not fair in that some of them are facing really difficult situations. Uh, sure, they, they've lost sure. family members or their siblings have died or they've seen terrible things. But they're still, um, they're still not mature in a way that, a graduate student or someone in their thirties is. So a lot of it is preparatory. And, and I think it's some, I'd like to think it, it helps. Like I still remember things from college, you know, not, not the little facts like we're saying, but there are moments or, or bits that were said that stuck with me. And so hopefully you're framing their skill set, framing their, their minds to think later when these things come about, or at least they know where to go to. Because uh, I agree, the internet is so powerful, uh, and we've talked about this before with Wikipedia, how great it is, because in the old days, you'd read BART, and you wouldn't know what a Latin phrase meant, and you were just stuck. Right. Uh, but now you can Google that or look it up on Wikipedia, and all of a sudden, you've got this great, uh, you know, you can read it so much more quickly and better. 
That actually happened to me, actually. I was, uh, it was for a Ralph Wood class. Ralph Wood? Yeah, um, careful. We should have like a bell every time we say his name. <laughs> Ding! Um, but uh, I was reading, he got me on a reading Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. Uh, and I got really into it. And there's one line where the guy is drunk and he says, in vino veritas. Hmm. I, I had no idea what that mm-hmm. meant. I was like, uh, where do you, uh, this is right before, I mean, this is like, Netscape like has just come out and like one gun no Google yeah no Google nothing and I remember I was like uh so I went to Ralph's office and I said what does that even mean and he walked me through it he says oh it it's an old phrase about you know in wine truth which means when you're drunk you tell the truth Hmm. uh, you don't hide back you know put on a mask I was like okay but now you know you can Google that and like Mm -hmm. if you have it on Kindle you can just open up the you just drop that app and open up another one and be back in the reading mm-hmm. in about five seconds, which is powerful. Yeah. But it also, there's this new sort of riff going on about how we're outsourcing our memories. Hmm. Actually, a really great book, uh, Moonwalking with Einstein on the Beach. Hmm. Crazy title, of course. But the it's about this journalist who hears about this memory competition. Guys that, you know, can memorize exceedingly large numbers, memorize entire... You know, like phone book kind of things, you, you can like quickly scan through a, a deck of cards and they'll I've tell you what's missing. I've heard about that. Yeah, memorize yeah. a deck of cards. Yeah, and he actually goes from not having any of it to suddenly winning like the Olympics in this competition. Wow. And the whole book is a riff on one, his crazy journey. I mean, he creates these goggles where he see, can't see peripherally and he only sees like through like a microscopic point as he's looking down trying to like do these cards. Really kind of crazy stuff. Mm. But it all comes down to mnemonics, which is a, actually centuries and centuries, almost basically, basically since like the Greco-Roman times, the mnemonics of how you memorize things, which is you assign it to something else. Mm-hmm. So the guy's name is Chester. Well, you know, m- m- you somehow associate that with some feature on his face, like a big set of glasses, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's how you remember his name. Well, that's how you always used to memorize stuff. So he starts reflecting on this, and he actually comments. He said... How many of us, uh, I forget what, where this is in the book, but he says, how many of us used to remember phone numbers and dates on our weekly calendar? Oh, just off the top of our head. Right. Now, we, if I had to call my wife right now from a payphone, I'd be like, uh, uh, <laughs> I, I think I know the area code, you know, yeah. kind of thing. Hey, hey Siri. Siri. And, and I, I don't, I, it's like I almost can't keep an appointment unless my phone buzzes to remind me. Mm-hmm. And it's just this idea that uh, the modern is both strengthened because they have so much at their fingertips, but they're weakened because they don't have these natural sets of how to remember things. Yeah. Um, that actually makes it harder to teach because the, the memorization of content is no longer considered all that important. Right. And yet it always will be because uh, you can't look things up all the time and, and you're going to have a hard time thinking through something when you've got to constantly recheck it. This is evidently in Plato. I've had some students talking about a colleague of mine that teaches this with Plato that... Uh, Plato's struggling with this in some of his writings because he's worried about the process of writing as a technology that once we start writing, we'll forget how to memorize. And it's true. <laughs> so even with quills and whatever, you know, papyrus, whatever Plato He's was like using. the guy in the horse-drawn carriage that doesn't want the t- Ford Model T car. Yes, to, like, yes, no, exactly. Cars. No, cars. slow down, share the road. Uh, yeah. So yeah, it goes back. It's been going back for a long time. But I don't think that means that it's all the same because it, it does get more more per, pernicious. I think yeah, that, sure. that uh, it, it's there are more um, more and more 
gaps and difficulties. Although interestingly, I think scholarship is so much better uh, with the ability to use so many different journals. When you read an average yes. scholarly journal now, it's got lots of footnotes. You read one 50 years ago, they'll cite four books because they just didn't right. have that much stuff, didn't have a library, didn't have a, an app to help them create a bibliography. Well, it's actually kind of scary when you publish because one of those first sort of coming-of-age moments in the doctorate was when you know I'm reading a secondary source. And, and I'm not quite jiving with it. I don't know if I agree with it. And then I see that he or she cites one or two primary sources. Well, the thing that shocked me when I arrived at Cambridge was they have digitized, digitally photographed, every, basically every document from like 1480 to like 1700. Wow. And they're now searchable because they key coded all of these documents. So sitting in my pajamas one day, reading the secondary book, I'm like, wait, let me check this out. I could call up the original document mm -hmm. in a PDF, go directly to the page that he cites. And I notice in this one particular case, the very next line after the one he cites contradicts the thing he says about the line. About, about this, it was like, ooh, what are those? I'm going to have to use that in one of my chapters, mm -hmm. you know, because you always want to show that you can, you know, uh, slog it out with other scholars or something. Right. But well, in this case, it was, it, you could tell he'd written the dissertation in, I think the early nineties before this database was available. And you could tell he had written down in his notes, these things mm -hmm. six months later had forgotten the context, forgotten sure. the next line might've changed it, this kind of thing. I mean, scholars aren't geniuses on this level. They can't remember everything. And so he had put this in his book and argued with abandon that this is what he says. And again, the very next line says the opposite. But so you could check stuff now. So it's it's powerful. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, I found, I mean, truthfully, I found books that no one has probably read since they were published in the 1500s because they, you know, they were not bestsellers. It was written by some obscure Anglican Protestant mm -hmm. theologian and no one cites them anywhere. But I found these like four commentaries of like, it's like the cousin of a famous Anglican. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's, it's like <laughs> what was uh was Bill Clinton's brother, like his kind of goofball brother. But it's, like, <laughs> yeah. it's kind of like that. Uh, but, you know, it's some good material in there that I was, I, I'm just making this case at this, the kind of general flow of, of this period of time. But it's like, I found it because I technically Google searched it in this database. So it's powerful. But then I'm also finding these dissertations, these books, where they are just slapping everything together with all these primary sources. And there's no... I guess the word is reflection. There's no mm -hmm. central thesis. It's just, hey, look at the research I can do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, you definitely can drown in all the databases and, and sources and footnotes because you can make as many footnotes as you want. With Microsoft Word, pretty much, without a typewriter, you're, you're really limited because each footnote is, is a heck of a lot of pain. You actually yeah. have to type it out or pay a typesetter. So, I mean, I, I keep, you keep hearing these stories of dissertations where a guy has a typo. And he has to go through page after page and white out <laughs> the thing. And you're just going, really? Well, well. yeah. But but the, the, here's the thing also about tech is uh, someone was telling me. So it used to be, who knows the content? So maybe a hundred years ago, who like who has been to school and read the books mm -hmm. and they're the legitimate. Only who went to Tubigen and checked out the library and read that exactly. stuff? Exactly. And then it became who's not so much who has the content, but who's been. That's sort of the next step of that, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. And that this person was sort of making the argument that you carry it down. Right now, we're on the verge of a well-educated person is the one who asks the right questions of a search. Wow. 
And if you think about it, how many times do you type something into Google and you go, oh, that's not what I wanted. How about, right. you know, Dances with Wolves Part 2? Like you, you try to find some like obscure, you, you know, how do you search for the words mm-hmm. or the thing you're looking for? That we're actually training ourselves uh, intuitively to, to think about the questions we want the search engine to give us back mm-hmm. because we assume the content doesn't need to be remember, uh, memorized. Yeah. Really weird. It is weird. Although in a sense, hearing you say that, that is kind of what academics has always been, is asking the right question. It's sure. just now sure. you can ask the computer, but before you kind of ask the book. And I find this often, students will ask, you know, what, what does he say about this? And I'll either say, well, I don't know, or I'll say, uh, I don't think he addresses it, but here's what I think he would say. And it's sort of, yeah. you know, so asking that question and then guessing what you think Shakespeare would say or whatever it is, um, is kind of a mark of doing the academic work. But yeah. I, I guess as you're saying, part of it is the distinction between the computer versus our searching the question. And and I know for me, a lot of it has been connecting books that hadn't been connected. Um, yeah. And that yeah. you're not going to find that in a search query. Is You can't just look up red roses and find out everything. You're going to have to connect things that may not have gone together, but you say, this stuff goes together, and I'm going to show you how. So a computer is like having a, a really weird friend that, yeah. that, can play mo- that can play video games. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And that's why we love them. And I'm not a Luddite. I don't say we got to get rid of these things, but it's just sort of an interesting world. I think you're right, though, to say that this has always been what scholarship is, mm-hmm. asking the right questions. Mm-hmm. And then that leads you at least part to where you want to find the answer. Mm-hmm. That's right. Well, is that a good place to end? I think so. All right.